This is a podcast about Jeopardy. Hello and welcome to Potent Potables, your weekly Jeopardy podcast where two former competitors bring you recaps and analysis of the week's Jeopardy episodes, a deep dive into a topic inspired by one of those episodes, and a quiz. I'm Emily. And I'm Kyle. And this is the week of March 14th, 2022. And Emily, how is it going? Um, it's going all right. I mean, a few weeks ago we were at Disney, so it's not that it's not it's not that great. It's, not that uh, <laughs> yeah. it's hard hard to beat that. Um, but you know, it's starting to be spring around here. I think we hit seventy degrees today, and uh, we sort of uh, took the edge off the sort of post Disney drop by going to an indoor water park on this random day off the kids had from school. So that was fun. Yes. Um, yeah. What about you? How are things going? Oh, things are going fine. I was on spring break this week. Nice. Really just meant a lot of being with the kids. Mm-hmm. Um, they're still too young for us to go anywhere and like doing things is hard. And But it was fine. It was good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, nice. Yeah. So that's where we are. So we're going to talk about Jeopardy. And on Monday, March 14th, we have the contestants Amy Beckerman, an academic copy editor from Durham, New Hampshire, Susan Swan, an employment attorney from San Diego, California, and Matt Glassman, a bar owner from Los Angeles, California, whose one-day cash winnings total $8,900. And we have the Jeopardy! round categories, A Few Moments with Millard Fillmore, Hobbies, I Love You 3000, Europe, 70s television, and words with only one consonant. And I think this has happened, uh, I think I've mentioned this in a previous episode, um, but I uh, am only able to review the J-Archive version of this game, um, having having had DVR problems uh, for Monday and Tuesday. Mm, yeah. um, but I'm, I'm very grateful that J-Archive exists. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Thank you, guys. We had a triple stumper at the $2,000 level of words with only one consonant, uh, it's home for an osprey. Amy rang in, took up her time, and then said, Airy, at the end of time, there wasn't a, like, there wasn't a sound to say she was out of time, but Ken told her she ran out of time. Uh, Susan guessed what is a marsh, which has four consonants. Uh... (laughs) But it's an airy, and she, Amy apparently just didn't get it in in mm-hmm. time. So that was unfortunate. And also, you know, I wonder if since she said it and it was ruled incorrect for any reason, the others were like, oh, that can't be it then. Yeah, I bet. The $1,000 clue of I love you 3000 In 2021, a trader's fat finger error led to a sale price of 3000 instead of 300000 for an NFT short for this. Uh, that is a non-fungible token, which was the source of a lot of my, like, I hate it on this planet uh, <laughs> in the last year or so. Yeah. Somebody accidentally sold the idea of something for right. $3,000 instead of $300,000. Yeah. It's like, I, I think the error was that somebody paid $3,000 uh-huh for a thing that isn't that doesn't exist yeah Oops. um and and before anybody comes at us on twitter to try to explain how nfts work i know how nfts work i know how nfts work 
I mean, I don't especially care how NFT works, NFTs work, right. but uh, yeah, no, um, I know how NFTs work because uh, this is it's part of my husband's job to understand how NFTs work. And uh, it's not that I don't understand. It's that it is stupid. <laughs> Emily, making the... <laughs> Making the, making the bold claims, getting the hot takes um, here. Mm-hmm. All right, she's just laying it out. I was trying to was gonna try to skirt the nope, issue. But... Nope, nope, I'm I'm going right for it. Yeah, cool. Yes. All right. Anyway, daily double number one comes up in the Europe category at the four hundred dollar level. It's the eighth pick, and Amy finds it. She has a thousand at this point. To Matt's 2,800, Susan ha- is at zero. And uh, Amy makes it a true daily double with a thousand and gets the clue Rossini never visited this Spanish city where he set an 1816 opera. And Amy knows that one. It's Seville, um, as in the Barber of. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The mm-hmm. Barber of Seville has a character named Figaro. Is that right? Yes. Is, is Fig. And the Fig. Is the Figaro who is the Barber of Seville a different Figaro than the Marriage of Figaro? Is it just a common name or an uncommon name that gets used in multiple operas by different composers? Or is it like the same? I don't know. This is a thing I should already know, but... It is. Because I thought it was, like, I was pretty sure it was. But then there's a part of me that, like, no, you made that up without looking at it. But I was like, I'm not I'm pretty sure I didn't make it up. Yeah, it Mm -hmm. is. um, It is the same Barber. It is the same Figaro. Oh, okay. Cool. I remember a long time ago, like hearing that, I don't know if it's, is it an aria? Is it a, I don't know what, like where there's like a, like a, I don't know, a low voice singing the name Figaro. And I'm like, that must be from the marriage of Figaro. And And uh, it is not, it is is not. (laughs) Yes. That is an aria called Largo e Factorum. Ah, now we know, or, you know, now I know. Um, so at the end of the Jeopardy round, Matt is in the lead with 7,200. Susan's at 2,400. Amy's at 4,400. And we have the double Jeopardy categories, the New York Times Book Review, which Ken notes recently celebrated its 125th anniversary. Toon River, nuclear physics, rhyming with the Greek gods, libraries, and shh, S-H in quotation marks. I liked the rhyming with the Greek gods. They got they got more uh, more obscure, which was good. I liked it. Mm. Um, they had, I mean, they had easy ones like a whole geologic time period center on the Queen of the Olympians. That's a Hera era era, which they, uh, Matt got easily. But we like the two thousand dollar level deception practiced by the Muse of Dance. That is terpsichore trickery. Nice. That is not one you normally get to when you're thinking of like. When you're just like, if a Jeopardy category comes up and it's Greek gods, you're not, you're not usually going down the list to Terpsichore. Yeah, that was, that was delightful. Uh, Daily Double number two is in the libraries category at the ninth pick. Amy finds it at the $1,600 level. She is at 5,200. Matt's at 11,200. Susan is at 3,600. And uh, Amy wagers 4,000. Gets the clue, the National Library of Medicine is maintained by the National Institutes of Health in this unincorporated Maryland community. And she has no idea, but it is Bethesda. Mm-hmm. Which I thought was pretty tough. I, you just, yeah. You just kind of have to know that NIH is in Bethesda. Mm-hmm. Right, there was, I didn't think there was much of a clue there. 
but yeah yeah agreed um and daily double number three is in nuclear physics it's also at the 1600 dollar level and amy finds it on the very next pick uh and so the scores are the same except that amy now is at 1200 and uh the maximum she can wager now is 2000 so uh which is kind of a bummer she's dropped down 4000 now is now can't make it back up um but she does wager the 2000 and gets the clue from their position on the periodic table elements with atomic numbers greater than 92 are labeled with this term and she does know this one it is transuranium so she gets herself moving back in the right direction and she has a pretty strong end to the round uh so going into final jeopardy matt is in the lead at sixteen thousand. susan's at 5600 and amy is at nine thousand six hundred. We have the final Jeopardy category, World War I, and the clue, Suvla Bay and Cape Helles were major landing sites along this peninsula. Uh, Susan wrote, what is Hellenic? Uh, and that is incorrect, but she wagered nothing, so she stays at 5,600. Amy got it correct with, what is Gallipoli? Mm-hmm. Uh, the famous site of much fighting. Uh, and she wagered 6,500. So she gets $100 ahead of Matt, and Matt wrote, what is Danzig? Which is incorrect. He wagered 3201, and that means that Amy is the champion. Mm-hmm. So on Tuesday, we have the contestants Simi Landau, an elementary school teacher from Washington, D.C., Ariel San Jose, a digital marketing manager from South San Francisco, California, and Amy Beckerman, an academic copy editor from Durham, New Hampshire, whose one-day cash winnings total $16,100. And we have the Jeopardy categories, foreign words and phrases, TV news, fashion, the ancient mariner, water water and everywhere and uh we had a triple sumper at the thousand dollar level of the ancient mariner talking about another famous world war one battle uh the clue is henry allingham died aged 113 in 2009 as the last survivor of world war one's biggest naval clash the battle of this danish land amy guessed what is arnhem land uh that's the battle of jutland mm-hmm. which is the biggest naval battle in world war one I. I think arnhem has more to do with world war ii if i correct i, th- I th- i'm gonna look this up i thought arnhem was in the netherlands but now that i'm yeah arnhem is in the netherlands and arnhem land is a region in australia now i'm seeing i am seeing uh which i did not know but it is a region in northern the northern territory of australia okay all right now i know so uh i guess not a bad guess but not neither of neither of those places is in uh denmark ancient mariner category i'm realizing was a mix of clues about coleridge's rhyme of the ancient mariner oh no maybe it was just one about rhyme of the ancient mariner or yeah and most mostly it was about it's about a- old mariners. Aged, yes. Yeah, to use the term ancient is not necessarily accurate for this category, but... Yeah. I was like, oh, great, because I was paying a lot of attention in school <laughs> when we when we hit the rhyme of the ancient mariner in British literature. <laughs> I remember a lot about that. It, didn't, it, it doesn't did not, actually help me very no, much. It did not matter. Yeah. As a New Yorker, how do you feel about Flushing? Flush, Flushing is a great... It's a fun neighborhood. 
Flushing is awesome. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. I've never been, so I don't know. Mm-hmm. I just wanted wanted your take on it. Yeah. Um, flushing, it is where the biggest Chinese community in New York City is. Um, so when I go to flushing, it is usually to eat. Okay. And I am never disappointed. Nice. But uh, no, Flushing's a, Flushing is a super cool neighborhood with a lot of really interesting things. Uh, Daily Double number one is in that water water category at the $800 level. It's pick number 12. Uh, Amy finds it. She's at 2800 Ariel's at negative 1600 and Simmy's at 1400 and she bets 2000 Gets clue, the Holland's Deep River flows into the Herring Estuary, which ultimately discharges into this sea. And she kind of ponders it out and gets to the North Sea, which is correct. Mm-hmm. Uh, so by the end of the Jeopardy round, she is in the lead at 6,000. Ariel is out of the hole at 1,000 and Simi is at 4,200. And the double Jeopardy categories are buildings in history, glow authors, movie madness, classical music, and crossword clues Q. Which they love Q for crossword clues. Mm-hmm. We've mentioned before yes. that we had that category. Yeah. Yes, we did. Ours was, at, I think, at least crossword and maybe clues were spelled with Qs instead of the C. Mm. This one, they they spelled crossword clues correctly. Correctly with a C. <laughs> yes, they did not repeat any of our crossword clues words. Nope, nope they also. didn't. Also, yeah, I was hoping they would, but. Just relive my glory days forever here. Mm-hmm. Hey, hey, that's what it's about. Yeah, <laughs> that's why are we doing this podcast to relive mm-hmm. the glory days? Yes, indeed. Um, yeah, crossword clues Q was where I rang in with the word my mind being kumquat mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, had a had a countdown clock uh, to get myself to realize that kumquat does not start with Q; it just has a Q in it mm-hmm. um, and does not have six letters and uh thankfully i did make it around to quince in time yep yep but i almost didn't maybe (laughs) i don't know you did and that's what matters yeah well we can just keep on talking about things that are not directly relevant to this jeopardy episode and note that the 1200 dollars level of buildings in history uh the yusupov palace on saint petersburg mocha river was the location of the rather lengthy killing of this man in december 1916 that was rasputin Mm. and i did a deep dive about him a while ago indeed you did so if you want to uh learn about that episode (laughs) yeah you want to you want to catch up catch up on uh rasputin's uh very strange life and death Mm-hmm. Um, you can find that in the back catalog. Yeah. Um, Daily Double Two is in Glow Paris at the $1,600 level. Amy finds it just at the second pick. She's at $7,200 at this point uh, to Simi's $4,200. Ariel's in the red with negative $200. She wagers $5,000 and gets the clue. Some think that Lakshmi's blessings go to those whose homes glow brightest during this festival. And she knows it is Diwali. Mm-hmm. Festival of Lights. That's right. And Daily Double number three is a topic that I have talked about. 
Uh, it's in the author's category at the $1,600 level. Pick number 19, Amy finds it as well. She found all three. She's up to 22,200. Ariel is at negative 1,400, and Simi is at 8,600, and she wagers 5,000. McClue is best known for his detective stories. In his later years, he gave lectures on spiritualism and wrote a two-volume history of it. She gets that correct with who is Doyle, or Arthur Conan Doyle. Mm-hmm. So she goes out to a pretty big lead. But the last few clues. Ariel gets out of the red, and Simi gets herself up to 17,000, which is within striking distance. So at the end of the double jeopardy round, uh, Amy's at 28,000. Simi's at 17,000. Uh, Ariel is at 200. Um, so he gets to participate in Final Jeopardy, where the category is meteorology. And the clue is, it was feared this word caused panic. But in 1950, the U.S. Weather Bureau ended a ban on it in forecasts, saying prediction wasn't impossible. Ariel tries, what is surprise? (laughs) And uh, that's not correct. So with a wager of 199, he drops down to just a dollar. Simi tries, what is hurricane? That's not correct either. And she has wagered 5,000, dropping her down from 17,000 to 12,000. Amy figures it out and puts what is tornado. That is correct. And that brings her up to 38,000. Um, I had not realized there had been a ban on forecasting tornadoes. Yeah, I don't, you know, I did a deep dive on like the Fujita scale and tornadoes, and I don't recall coming across that information. That's, I was a little confused because I was like, well, is it, it might be a tornado, but I feel like I would have seen that. Mm-hmm. But apparently not. So there we go. Uh, so on Wednesday, we have the contestants Evan Freeman, a veterinarian from Georgetown, Ontario, Canada. Katie Hargrove, a personal assistant and writer from Redondo Beach, California. And Amy Beckerman, an academic copy editor from Durham, New Hampshire, whose two-day cash winnings total $54,100. Mm-hmm. And we have the Jeopardy! round categories Call Me Sometime, New York City Neighborhoods, Succession, you have to name the person who followed the one they named. Bolo Rama, numerical phrases, and can I make you a drink? Well, I'm sure that you really enjoyed the whole New York City neighborhoods category. Yes, um, I'm sure I did. <laughs> and I'll be looking forward to um, a, a Colorado neighborhoods mm-hmm. Uh, category because yep. uh, yeah, people are expected to know my city or you know my my nearest uh, my my former my, my former city of residence and my my current nearest city uh, in a level of detail that is pretty specific. Um, yep. Yeah, I'm trying to think like what other what other cities would you be expected to know like numerous neighborhoods? I don't know because like New Orleans, like, you need to know like one or two right things like paris like mm-hmm. london probably yeah you need to la maybe san francisco maybe maybe but those are only like one or two p- parts of those cities like yeah new york it's like we're gonna ask you about five different neighborhoods from the 20 that we could you know yeah. like yeah and we didn't mention this one this one this one that you would be right expected like to know. yeah like tribeca isn't here the fine like financial district i think would be a 
you know, a, f- a fair question. Murray Hill, maybe we're starting to get a little obscure. But like, I think there's I think there's at least a dozen more that they didn't touch on here that like, are fair, fair trivia game. Yeah. In in the sense that people ask about it. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. They did do a good job, I thought, um, adding clues so that you didn't necessarily need to know the neighborhood and could take a reasonable guess. Sure. They asked about a West Midtown neighborhood with a demonic name, also called Clinton. That's Hell's Kitchen. Mm-hmm. Uh, one that has lots of Greek restaurants in Queens and is ha- the second half of the name of a famous hotel. And Evan went for the neg bait there and guessed what is Carlton. Right. Um, but Astoria yeah. is the is what they were looking for. Um, they wanted to know what the U-E-S stands for that's upper east side um they had a question about a bronx neighborhood with new york's northernmost point where jughead does not really live that's riverdale so you know that's i feel like there were other ways in on a lot of these yeah but still i was very impressed with amy for knowing the mineral whose name is German for seafoam, from which the bowl of a pipe is often made. This was in the Bolorama category. Yeah. I I have never heard of Meerschaum, so good for her. Yeah, that was a good one. Yeah. Uh, Daily Double number one is in succession, um, and Amy finds it a, a, the very first pick. Mm-hmm. And uh, nobody has a dime at this point. Uh, she wagers the maximum of 1000 and she gets the clue, 1969, the original Triple H, Hubert H. Humphrey, is wrestled out of the Veep office. She tried who is Nixon, uh, but Spiro Agnew is the uh, the correct answer. It's the vice here. president. Yeah. The vice president. You have to name who succeeded that person, the person in that office. Um, um, so at the end of the Jeopardy round, Katie is in the lead with 5,800. Evans at 4,600, Amy's at 4,200. And we have the double jeopardy categories, national flags, plays, celebrity MDs, science and medicine, aviation, and online and texting abbreviations. Great. (laughs) Uh, Some of them were even real. That's true. Uh, So HMU, I knew that one. People actually say that, Mm -hmm. and it stands for hit me up. And DMs are direct messages. I will grant that. OTP, uh, I guess it's an online abbreviation. Um, Yeah, that one was questionable. And then the other two are just like, no. No. Could Ken talk to them about that? Like, why are they doing this to me? (laughs) Why are they doing it to anybody? Because it's not like, it's not, I don't know. Whatever. The $2,000 level ELI5 is shorthand for this expression, so use small words to clarify. And Evan got it. God bless him. Uh, Explain it to me like I'm five uh, is what they were looking for here. And, like, I also figured it out, but... But that's not... No one... mm. There's a difference between a thing a person has typed on the internet and an internet abbreviation. Right. We've talked about this enough. Yeah. Like in, in previous episodes, <laughs> our opinion is no. Yeah. Uh, Daily Double number two is the very first pick in the round. It's the $1,200 clue of plays, and Amy finds it. She's at 4200 Well, she's at the scores that they were just at. So she wagers 2000 The clue is 
Its last line is from Oscar. And watch your cigarettes, will you? This is my house, not a pigsty. And she gets correct with what is the odd couple. Mm-hmm. And Daily Double number three is in the science and medicine category at the $800 level. And Evan finds this one at the 17th pick. Uh, he has 5400 to Amy's 7400 and Katie's 12600 He makes it a true Daily Double, which is, I think, a good move mm-hmm. in this in this situation. Mm-hmm. Um uh, and gets the clue, this force that resists motion through air can be thought of as the aerodynamic version of friction. He tries what is viscosity that is incorrect. It's drag. What is drag? Yep. So unfortunately, he drops down there. And Katie kind of kind of flatlines for a good portion of this of this round. Um, Amy and Evan kind of work against themselves. Uh, but going into final... Katie is in the lead at 14,600. Amy's at 8,600. And Evan is at 4,800. And the final Jeopardy category is movie stars. And the clue is Matthew McConaughey said, quote, dazed and confused. The first words I ever said on film were, end quote, these. <laughs> yeah. All uh, right, Matthew McConaughey. Yeah. Uh, that, God, that's weird. Yeah. Um, so, uh, Evan. Got it correct, and Ken let Evan and Katie read their responses uh, because they got it correct. Evan wrote, "What is all right, all right, all right?" Mm-hmm. He wagered thirty-eight oh one. Amy wrote, "What is unintelligible?" <laughs> Which is a good answer mm-hmm. based on the clue. Uh, but <laughs> she wagered six thousand one, which is incorrect, and Katie also got it correct with "What are all right, all right, all right?" And she is our winner. Yes. All right. Well, on Thursday, March 17th, we have the contestants Joel Levinson, a head of content from Yellow Springs, Ohio, Finn Corrigan, a student from Vista, California, and Katie Hargrove, a personal assistant and writer from Redondo Beach, California, whose one-day cash winnings total $17,201. And we have the Jeopardy round categories Ballet, Seven Letter Grab Bag, Beastly Lit, Circumflexing on You, Sports with no balls and Irish name derivations. Um, appropriate for March 17th, which is St. Patrick's Day. I had heard that. Yeah. Oh, man. One thing I really like about not living in New York anymore is not being in New York on St. Patrick's Day because... Ugh. I bet it's obnoxious. Oh, it's very obnoxious. Yeah. St. Patrick's Day and Santa Con are my two least favorite days to live in New York. Do you know SantaCon? I don't, but it sounds SantaCon is SantaCon is like an enormous like a like a like a huge bar crawl where like literally thousands of people in December dress in Santa costumes and get plastered and like have fist fights and break stuff. It's great. It's Yay. great. It's it's great. It's, yeah. It's enormous. It's like you you forget that Santa Con is going to start and then you're just trying to go about your business and then like a thousand Santas stumble down the street like a herd of Santas. It's horrible. I'm sorry. Yeah, thank you. I can't say that I've never encountered that. (laughs) Yeah, it's the worst. I have encountered uh, the, the probability that college me wrote 
this round, given uh, the sports with no balls at $1,000 was lots of open space, seven players per team, and one disc. That's ultimate frisbee. And the $1,000 level of seven-letter grab bag, also called free running, this French-sounding word allows one to overcome obstacles and leaps and bounds. No one got that. That was a triple stuffer. It's parkour. Parkour. Mm-hmm. A lot of my, a lot of my college time and and energy was spent on one of those two things. <laughs> Daily double number one is in the Irish name derivations category at the six hundred dollar level. It's pick number three. That's where they started, and uh, Katie found it. She's at six hundred. The other two are at zero. She's be- she bets a thousand. It gets the clue. Also a type of foldaway bed. It derives from Gaelic for sea warrior, and she gets it correct with what is Murphy. She gets some money. That category was nice because uh, it gave it gave the like the like the derivation right, but then it also gave you a clue to be able to figure it out because there's no way <laughs> there's no way you'd be able to get there from the this is what it originally meant. Yeah. So at the end of the Jeopardy round, Katie is at thirty four hundred, Finn is at four thousand, and Joel is at two thousand. We get the double Jeopardy categories. Let's have a confluence: movie and TV role in common, throwing shade. History quick takes, chemical people, and X's and O's. With those in quotation marks, each correct response will begin with one or the other, either X or O. That was a tough category. There were a couple that struck me as especially hard, both of which were triple stumpers. There was a third triple stumper also, but I happened to know it, so. Um, <laughs> At the 1200 from Greek for dry and writing, this 10-letter word was described in 1948 as a revolutionary process of inkless printing. Uh, that's xerography, like Xerox. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the $2,000 level, it's a gesture, su- gesture such as a bow to show reverence or respect. That is obeisance? Ob- yeah, obeisance. obeisance. Yeah. I don't think I've ever heard that pronounced before today's episode like i've seen it many times but it's an obscure one this is this is coming from somebody who was consistently made fun of as a child for using words that were too large and are only supposed to be in books um uh, supposed to be in books yeah talking like a dictionary again i did know about the obverse of a coin the side of a coin with the principal design it helped to remember uh, that the category was X's and O's, so we needed to start with one of those. Um, Katie had forgotten the category and tried what is heads, mm. which is is a fine response. Except it doesn't start with X or O. Right. Oh, did you touch on... I'm sorry, I got I got distracted. I don't think you did, though. And the, the Swan Lake clue in the previous oh, round... Oh, it's fine, no. Oh, no. yeah. I just remembered that, like, that we'd had that, that clue in the previous round where Black Swan and White Swan were accepted mm-hmm. Which I think although is- they were yeah no i think i think they didn't specify that they were looking for names right they were looking for roles and i think black swan and white swan fit is, yeah absolutely it's fair yeah yeah mm-hmm. yeah although they were looking for odette and odile daily double number two is in the history quick takes category at the $1,200 level, and Finn finds it very early in the round at the second pick. He has 4800 at this point to Katie's 3400 and Joel's 2000 He wagers 1500 and gets the clue. In 1642, Mongols deposed dip- 
Tibet's ruling dynasty and gave rule to the man with this title. And he tried what is Khan. It's an understandable guess given, you know, the, the keywords Mongols and title. Right. Yeah. Um, but they're looking for the Dalai Lama here. Right. You got to think about uh, position of power in Tibet. Yep. Yep. Uh, and Daily Double number three is an, in the chemical people category at the $1,600 level. Pick number 28. It's very late in the round. Finn finds this one as well. He's at 10900 Katie's at 9800 and Joel's at 2400 And he wagers just 2100 Gets the clue. Danish chemist Henrik Dahm named this vitamin for its aid in coagulation, a word spelled differently in Denmark. Uh, and Finn doesn't know. He guesses what is vitamin A, but that is vitamin K, which is spelled with a K in Danish. Hmm. Coagulation spelled with a K. Yep. So at the end of the double jeopardy round, Finn has taken the lead with 10,800. Um, Katie's at 9,800. Joel's at 2,400. And we have the final Jeopardy category, nonfiction. And the clue, this 1962 classic was dedicated to Albert Schweitzer, who predicted that man, quote, will end by destroying the earth. Joel tried, what is, are you there, God? It's me, Margaret. Joel was so funny. (laughs) He was great. I really enjoyed him. So good to watch. (laughs) Yes. Uh, (laughs) It is not the, uh, the young adult classic are you there god it's me margaret but no. like <laughs> respect to joel for an excellent wrong answer uh he wagered zero dollars so it doesn't matter he stays at 2400 katie uh got it correct with what is silent spring she wagered 4999 which i think is a an appropriate wager so if she'd been wrong that would have dropped her down to 4801 mm-hmm. Which is a dollar above what Joel could get. So, yeah, she's trying to stay above Joel's double up in the event of Joel being the only person who gets it right. Yeah, so very smart wagering from Katie. Very nice. We love to see a good second place wager. Finn has it correct, though. So Katie's wagering strategy is moot. He crossed it out, but then wrote it again. What is Silent Spring? And he wagered 8801, which is correct. We love to see a good wager from first place. Mm-hmm. Good job, everybody. Nice work. Yep. And on Friday, we have the contestants Michael Chin, an attorney from Atlanta, Georgia, Deborah Burgess, an adjunct assistant professor of history from Cincinnati, Ohio, and Finn Corrigan, a student from Vista, California, whose one-day cash winnings total $19,601. We have the Jeopardy round categories Arthropodcast, Global Organizations, Analyzing the Seuss Character, the five W's in other languages, easy peasy, and lemon squeezy. I believe it's pronounced the soy character. I I don't know if you noticed my hesitation, but I, I, <laughs> I wanted to say that. Uh, that. That crossed my mind. Yeah. Um, that is uh, That was how he actually pronounced his name, which we talked about uh, back when I did a deep dive about Dr. Seuss. Mm-hmm. They knew their Dr. Seuss characters. Got all they of did. them on the first try. Mm-hmm. Especially Michael. Michael did particularly well mm-hmm. with it. Get, get, getting there with Bartholomew Cubbins at the $1,000 level. This title guy gets a death sentence via beheading, then overcomes his hoarding and sells his 500 hats to the king. Mm-hmm. They struggled a little with... um. Oh, no, just with one, I think. 
of the five W's. Yeah, there was one particularly notable miss. Yeah, the $600 level uh, Norwegian Fava. Uh, and Finn tried what is where, Dever tried what is how, Michael tried who is what is who, and Ken noted that they had all said the correct response in their incorrect responses because the correct response would have been what is what. Mm-hmm. Or just what? What? <laughs> I th- that with that whole category, you could have just could have just said who could have just said the the yeah just said the answer inquisitively. Yeah, with a lilt. And I think they would take it. Yeah, I think so. We also had a triple stumper about mother sauces. We did. Lemon squeezy. Whiskey yolks in the top of a double boiler and slowly add clarified butter and lemon juice to make this one of cuisine's mother sauces. Deborah guessed what is Bernays and Finn guessed what is Bechamel. Both of those were incorrect. That's Hollandaise. Mm-hmm. Hollandaise, if I am remembering correctly, is kind of the contested mother sauce i thought that was ketchup <laughs> i believe uh ketchup is a variation of sauce tomate um, that's right that's right that's yeah, right uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah uh so there are five mother sauces bechamel espanol velouté tomato sauce sauce tomate um and hollandaise but like there have been lists that included mayonnaise and then said hollandaise was like mm-hmm. a warm version of mayonnaise mm-hmm. um uh that's what i've always yeah. said <laughs> yeah anyway but uh if you want if you want to really get into uh the history of the mother sauces uh there's there's a deep dive on that as well there is yeah uh daily double number one is the 15th pick of the round and Michael finds it. It's in that analyzing the Seuss character category at the $800 level. He's at 1000 at this point. Deborah's at 600 Finn is in the red with negative $200. Uh, he makes it a true daily double and gets the clue pro-environment and perhaps with a savior complex. He, quote, was shortish and oldish and mossy, uh, end quote, and kind of looked like Wilford Brimley. <laughs> She kind of did. Who is Wilford Brimley? Uh, he was the actor. He was in the diabetes commercials. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. Yep. No, kind of does. <laughs> um, Michael knows that's the Lorax. He speaks for the trees. He speaks um, for the trees. For the trees have no tongues. I'm asking you, sir, at the top of my lungs, <laughs> why does the entire text of so many Dr. Seuss books live rent-free inside my brain. Because you've read them enough? I have. The Lorax was like... The Lorax, I actually have not read with my kids, um, but like I went to like a a nature camp where there was like an annual um, like play, like sort of like very thrown together play of the Lorax. And mm. so I, I memorized it at that point. Nice. Or I don't think we were expected to have it memorized, but like, but come doctor, on, <laughs> the Dr. Seuss books, you know, they rhyme, they rhyme um, and they have the meter. That's very natural. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Anyway, uh, at the end of the jeopardy round, um, Michael's in the lead with 4,400. 
Finn has 4,000. Deborah's at 2,800. Uh, and we have the double jeopardy categories, tools of the trade, U.S. geography, biblical passages, women of country music, South American history, and middle E. E will be at the exact center of each correct response. Biblical passages. Passage referred not to a like a section of the text, but instead to like a like a gate or tunnel or other passage passage. Yeah. Apparently, dental hygienists were required to wear skirts at work, I guess, until 1971. Or at least no pants. Yeah. (laughs) Didn't have to wear skirts, but couldn't wear pants. Which, either way, skirt or not, I'm imagining when when I go to the dentist, that'd be pretty uncomfortable. Yeah. Ugh. 1971, which I realized was now over 50 years ago, but still not that long ago. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's wild. Mm -hmm. Daily Double number two is in the U.S. Geography category at the $1,200 level. It's pick number five. And Michael finds this one as well. He's at 6,000. Finn's at 5,200. Deborah's at 3,200. And he wagers 3,000. And he gets the clue. The cities of Providence and Newport lie at opposite ends of this bay. And uh, he guesses what is... I think he says Quahog uh, Bay. Uh, I don't even know if that's actually a bay, uh, but it is Narragansett, the the one that the one for Rhode Island that yeah you'd need to know. Huh. Quahog Bay is in Maine. Okay, that exists, and Family Guy is set in Quahog, Rhode Island. I think. Hmm. And Daily Double number three comes up just three clues later um, at the $1,200 level of South American history. Uh, And Finn finds this one. It's the eighth pick. Um, Finn has 6,400 at this point. Uh, Deborah's at 3,200. Michael's at 4,600. And Finn wagers 2,000 and gets the clue. In 1997, 30 years after his death in Bolivia, the remains of this revolutionary were returned to Cuba. And he gets this one right with Che Guevara. Um, I thought there was a the the very last clue of this round. I thought was a was a, a an interesting moment. Yeah, they did get to all of the clues on the board. Uh, so the final pick of the round um, was tools of the trade at the two thousand dollar level. At this point. Finn was at 12,800 and Michael was at 10,600. De- Deborah was at an even 10,000. Um, and then this last clue comes out. The Gemological Institute of America website sells a 10 times one of these. And Finn tries what is a magnifying glass. Ken asks him to be more specific. Um, he says, what is like a diamond magnifying glass, <laughs> which, uh, that's which, yeah. yep, that is, that's more specific, you know, like the chance that you will, that you will hit upon something that is specific enough, uh, is always worth looking a little silly on TV. I yeah. thought it was, I thought that was totally charming. Um, uh, but that was, that was, uh, ruled incorrect. And then Michael tried what is an appraiser's glass. That's also incorrect. 
and Ken sort of prompted Deborah, you know, d- did she want to try it? She did not. Uh, the correct answer here was a loop. Um, and Ken noted uh, to Deborah, you moved into second place by doing nothing on that clue. It is notated in J archive as her saying it's called strategy, but I thought I heard her say it's all strategy. That's that's what I thought she said too. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Either way, she makes a comment about how it was strategic. Yes. Which was nice. Keep clam is uh, how I've heard the, the Jeopardy fan puts the, puts the phrase keep clam on, on some merch, um, <laughs> which is, you know, the, the Jeopardy strategy advice of like, if you do not know, then just keep your mouth shut. Yeah. Um, yeah. Anyway, at the end of the double Jeopardy round, uh, like we just said, Finn is in the lead at 10,800, Deborah's at 10,000, and Michael's at 8,600. So it's a close game. Going into the final Jeopardy category of newspaper talk and the clue, meaning an important part of a story, this distinctive spelling helped distinguish the word from a substance used in typesetting. I never knew this, but it makes sense now. Uh, They all got it correct. Michael wrote, what is the lead? L-E-D-E. And Ken informs us that this is to... Um, differentiate it from lead, L-E-A-D. And uh, Michael wagered 2201. Deborah got it correct uh, and wagered 4500. And Finn also got it correct with a cover bet of 9201. So he is a two-game winner. And we'll see him again next week. So this is the end of the week. The point in the show where we uh, remind you that we have a patreon it is patreon.com slash potent potables uh, you can go there to support us financially or uh, and check out some exclusive content uh, if you so desire that is where you can do it uh, we are still in the market for an audio editor that has kind of fallen by the wayside a little bit lately but anyway uh, you can support us there patreon.com slash potent potables and of course as always um we know that there are more important things in the world than our podcast if you want to direct your attention and dollars to those things we encourage you to our list is getting longer <laughs> go to communityjusticeexchange.org blacklivesmatter.com the stop asian hate gofundme and uh, rescue.org all good organizations mm-hmm. All right, so Emily. Yes. Do you have deep dive guesses? I I have some. I I don't feel great about my third one. Okay. Um, but I haven't found a better guess than all my right. third one yet. So, but all right. Hopefully, I'll just get it in one, and we won't have to. Uh, we won't have to hear the other ones that you yeah, don't feel so good about. Yeah, there we about. go. That's the plan. All right. So, of course, we will be talking about the Boxer Rebellion. Holy God. <laughs> oh, oh, man. <laughs> <laughs> if only I were as good at Jeopardy as I was at guessing your deep dive topics. <laughs> if only. If only. I thought for sure you were going to pick Jean Sibelius. Because I very nearly went with Jean Sibelius. That was guess number three. Ugh. The other one was uh, James Smithson. Those were all, yeah, those are on my list. Yeah. God, you're so good at this. Uh, I think I have talked about on the podcast, though, that I would like to learn about the Boxer Rebellion. 
You have, yes. Yeah. So I mean, I it's I'm not surprised. Uh, this was on the Thursday game, uh, Double Jeopardy round history quick takes. It was a four hundred dollar clue. Rebellion is in the air, and the photo scene here showing fighters in this nineteen hundred uprising. Uh, Finn guessed what is the Zulu uprising again? It's hard to see the screen, and it was in like kind of sepia, black and white sort of mm-hmm. like. But those are boxers of the Boxer Rebellion. Uh, so we're going to talk about the Boxer Rebellion. And the Boxer Rebellion has a lot. Like, it's it's a war. There's a lot of details in terms of, like, f- battles and, like, fighting and, and, like, troop numbers and things like that. I'm actually going to skip over the, re- like, the war aspect because the details of the fighting are, you know, might be trivia useful. But really, the knowledge of the Boxer Rebellion is more important for, like, why did it start and what were the effects? Uh, so that's really what I'm going to focus on more. Mm-hmm. Great. That sounds good. Thanks. Yeah, I, I agree. <laughs> so the Boxer Rebellion or Boxer Uprising or Boxer Insurrection or uh, Yihetuan Movement was not really a rebellion at all. It's 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 kind of a misnomer because as i as i i will get to it wasn't a rebellion against the established government an uprising is kind of a way to put it it was really an anti-foreign anti-colonial and anti-christian armed movement uh in china from 1899 to 1901 uh so the like calling it a rebellion is not really it's a very Western view of it to say that they were rebelling against the foreign powers who had who were just trying to spread, you know, trade and, and Christianity. So in the in the 1890s, in 1895, there was the Sino-Japanese War, uh, which China lost. Uh, Japan defeated China uh, in, in that war. And so villagers in North China feared the expansion of the foreign spheres of influence. If you heard the term sphere of influence, uh, it really was kind of coined and used in terms of different foreign powers gaining influence in different parts of China. Uh, and so the, the villagers in Northern China were particularly concerned about this, especially because, uh, Christian missionaries had been extended a number of privileges, um, and they extended those privileges to those their their followers. In 1898, North China, Northern China also experienced uh, several natural disasters, including the Yellow River flooding and droughts. Now we're going to talk about the Boxers real quick. They were extremely like religious and spiritual, and so the Boxers and other people of Northern China blamed Christian missionaries and Christian influence for those natural disasters. And beginning in 1899, the boxers began spreading violence along the Shandong and the North China Plain, uh, destroying foreign property such as railroads and attacking and murdering Christian missionaries and uh, Chinese Christians. So they, they also viewed Chinese converts as essentially foreign. They considered them part of uh, part of the problem and, and among the enemy. All right, so the origin of the boxers. The Yihikwan, or the Righteous and Harmonious Fists, is kind of a sort of loosely organized uh, group that arose in the inland sections of the northern coastal province of Shandong. That region had been plagued by social unrest, 
religious sects, and martial societies. The term boxer probably comes from uh, Christian missionaries, American missionaries, uh, referring to the well-trained and athletic young men who were involved in, in, these, in this society, the righteous and harmonious fists. Mm-hmm. Their primary practice religiously was a type of spiritual possession, which involved the whirling of swords, violent prostrations, and the chanting of incantations to deities. This group feared foreign influence or despised foreign influence, uh, and they saw an opportunity to fight against Western encroachment and colonization. It was particularly attractive to uh, the unemployed village men, um, many of them who were teenagers. And so the tradition among the boxers and the, the religious tradition there contributed to the idea that they could become invulnerable by becoming possessed by these uh, spirits or deities. And so they they claimed that they were invulnerable against cannons, rifle shots, and knife attacks. Uh, they also believed that millions of soldiers would descend out of heaven to assist them in purifying China of foreign oppression. That hmm. did not necessarily happen. Uh, there were a number of, like I said, Christian missionaries, both from America and from Europe, including the German Society of the Divine Word. And the boxers took issue with the privileges that they were granted from the imperial government. And they uh, they saw that the enemy was foreign influence, and they decided that the primary devils were Christian missionaries and the secondary devils were the Chinese converts to Christianity. Both had to recant or be driven out or killed. Mm. So this combination of extreme weather conditions and Western attempts at colonizing China, as well as growing anti-imperialist sentiment, fueled the movement. Uh, in October 1898, a group of boxers attacked the Christian community of the Liuantan village, where a temple to the Jade Emperor had been converted into a Catholic church. Uh, disputes had surrounded the church since 1869, when the temple had been granted to the uh, Christian residents of the village. This incident marked the first time the boxers used the slogan, support the Qing, the Qing dynasty, destroy the foreigners, that later characterized them. So, like, if you look at that slogan, they're not they're not rebels, right? Mm-hmm. They, they are like, support the dynasty, destroy the foreigners. And the boxers called themselves the Militia United in Righteousness for the first time a year later at the Battle of Senluo Tempo, which was October 1899. That was a clash between boxers and Qing government groups. So at the beginning, the government was like not in favor of this like, you know, armed militia going around attacking foreigners who were there with permission of the government. But as we will see, the boxers had a lot of popular support and pretty quickly gained the support of the imperial government. Mm-hmm. Aggression toward missionaries and Christians drew the ire of foreign, mainly European governments. In 1899, the French minister in Beijing helped the missionaries to obtain an edict granting official status to every order in the Roman Catholic hierarchy, enabling local priests to support their people in legal or family dispute, disputes and bypass local officials. Uh, this also coincided with the Hundred Days Reform in which progressive Chinese officials with support from Protestant missionaries persuaded the Guangxu emperor to institute sweeping reforms. This alienated many conservative officials whose opposition uh, led the Empress Dowager Cixi to intervene and reverse the reforms. The failure of the reform movement disillusioned many educated Chinese and further weakened the Qing government. Uh, The Empress seized power and placed the reformist emperor under house arrest. This national crisis was widely perceived as caused by foreign aggression inside. 
At the time, the Qing government was extremely corrupt. Common people often faced extortions from government officials, and government offered no protection to the violent actions of the boxers. So in January of 1900, Empress Dowager Qixi changed her position on the boxers and issued edicts in their defense, causing protests from foreign powers. Like I said, the boxers had a lot of popular support, and the Empress Dowager was not quite as progressive, um, not quite as open to foreign ideas, necessarily. Mm -hmm. And so uh, she, like I said, issued an edict in their defense. Uh, this upset all of the Westerners, and the, the boxers began moving more, uh, more confidently. On the 5th of June 1900, the rail line to Tianjin was cut by boxers in the countryside, and Beijing ended up being isolated. On the 11th of June, this is a big event, at the Yongding Gate, the secretary of the Japanese legation uh, was attacked and killed by soldiers of General Dong Fuxiang. They were guarding the southern part of the Beijing Wall. So mm -hmm. the killing of the Japanese ambassador uh, led to Japan deciding that they need to do something about it. And Kaiser Wilhelm II was alarmed by the Chinese Muslim troops that served under Don Fuxiang. They were known as the Gansu Braves. So as the situation grew more violent, a multinational force of 2,000 sailors and marines under the command of British Vice Admiral Edward Seymour uh, was dispatched from Dagu to Beijing. They tried to make their way to Beijing. However, after after some skirmishes, they were, ended up being surrounded. The uh, the boxers were much better at warfare, it seemed like. Like, they were much more strategic. They used pincer movements. They used decoys. They were fighting to win, whereas the, uh, the Europeans, especially early on, figured that they could just come in and sweep these simpletons out of the way. Mm -hmm. But the Seymour expedition took a number of losses and had to retreat. On the 15th of June, Qing imperial forces deployed electric mines in the Beihe River uh, to prevent the Eight-Nation Alliance from sending ships to attack. So by this time, we have the Eight-Nation Alliance of the British Empire, Russia, Japan, France, Germany, the United States, Italy, and Austria-Hungary. They all sent troops and ships to China because of the various... Uh, Various attacks on Christian missionaries from their countries, or at least they use that as an excuse to get a hand in on the action, because they all wanted some influence in China. Russia, of course, borders China and uh, wanted to exert more influence over Manchuria and northern China. Uh, Japan, of course, wanted to influence the whole thing. The European powers were essentially squabbling over who gets what kind of influence. So anyway, on the 15th of June, I mentioned they mined the river. And so uh, communications had broken down between the Eight-Nation Alliance and the Qing government. So the Allied Nations took steps to reinforce their military presence significantly. On the 17th of June, uh, they took the Dagu forts, commanding the approaches to Tianjin, and brought an increasing number of troops on shore. That same day, Empress Shishi uh, received an ultimatum that China surrender total control over all its military and financial affair to foreigners. She defiantly stated before the entire Grand Council, now they have started the aggression and the extinction of our nation is imminent. If we just fold our arms and yield to them, I would have no face to see our ancestors after death. If we must perish, why do we not fight to the death? Mm -hmm. And so at that point, 
uh, Cixi began to blockade the legations uh, with the army of the Peking Field Force. And this began the, the siege of Beijing. Uh, so the foreigners were the ones who were besieged in Beijing, which is really just an interesting like situation to me. Hmm. Yeah. So on the 19th of June, Empress Dowager uh, sent an order to the legations that the diplomats and other foreigners depart Beijing under escort of the Chinese army within uh, 24 hours. Fearing that they would be killed, they refused the Empress's demand. They didn't trust that they wouldn't just be killed outright. On the 21st of June, Empress Dowager Cixi declared war against all foreign powers, and so an actual, like, formal war was declared between China and the Eight-Nation Alliance. After the siege of Beijing, uh, there was the Gasoli Expedition, which was uh, when foreign navies began building up their presence along the northern China coast at the end of April 1900. Several international forces were sent to the capital with varying success, and the Chinese forces were ultimately defeated by the Eight-Nation Alliance uh, at that point. They captured Tianjin on the 14th of July. The international force suffered its heaviest casualties of the Boxer Rebellion at the Battle of Tianjin. Uh, however, they established it as a base, and they marched from Tianjin to Beijing. The temperature reached 108 degrees Fahrenheit during their march, and many Allied soldiers died simply from the heat. Uh, however, during this time, they also treated every Chinese person as an enemy, and there were a number of atrocities and terrible actions taken mm -hmm. uh, by the by the Allies. In the early hours, hours of the 15th of August, just as the foreign legations were being relieved, Empress Dowager Cixi escaped from Beijing and uh, escaped to Xishan in the Sanxi province. Russia, like I mentioned, took this opportunity to invade Manchuria, which is uh, in the north uh, western portion of China and actually continues to hold a good portion of Manchuria still uh, after this war. During the Boxer Rebellion, however, uh, obviously, like, the Allies were not particularly humane to the Chinese people. However, there were a number of massacres of missionaries and Christian Chinese. During the rebellion as a whole, a total of 136 Protestant missionaries and 53 children were killed as well as 47 Catholic priests and nuns, 30,000 Chinese Catholics, 2,000 Chinese Protestants, and uh, 200 to 400 of the, of the Russian Orthodox Christians in Beijing. Mm -hmm. So it was not blameless on either side. Yeah. The Eight-Nation Alliance occupied the Xili province while Russia occupied Manchuria, but the rest of China was not occupied due to this, the actions of several Han governors who formed the Mutual Protection of Southeast China. Uh, they refused to obey the declaration of war and kept their armies and provinces out of the war. So after the, the Qing Empress escaped, the war essentially ended because most of the provinces decided not to fight. Beijing, Tianjin, and, and Chile province were occupied for more than one year by the International Expeditionary Force under the command of German General Alfred Grafter von Waldersee. And uh, they, over that time, worked to suppress the boxers rather brutally. Contemporary British and American observers leveled their greatest criticism at German, Russian, and Japanese troops for their ruthlessness and willingness to execute Chinese of all ages and backgrounds, sometimes burning and killing entire village populations. Um, some but by no means all Western missionaries took an active part in calling for retribution. Um, mm -hmm. To provide restitution to missionaries and Chinese Christian families whose property had been destroyed, William Emmett, a missionary of American Board of Commissioners for Foreign Missions, guided American troops through villages to punish those he suspected of being boxers and confiscate their property. Hmm. 
which is not a great look. Yeah. So it it went pretty bad from there. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to move forward. Uh, after the capture of Peking by foreign armies, some of Emperor Dowager Cixi's advisors advocated that the war be carried on, arguing that China could have defeated the foreigners as it was disloyal and traitorous people within China who allowed Beijing and Tianjin to be captured by the Allies. On September 7th, 1901, the Qing Imperial Court agreed to sign the Boxer Protocol, which is also known as the Peace Agreement between the Eight-Nation Alliance and China. It ordered the execution of ten high-ranking officials linked to the outbreak of violence and other officials who were found guilty for the slaughter of foreigners in China. China was fined war reparations of 450 million taels of fine silver, for the loss that it caused. Uh, the reparation was to be paid by 1940, within 39 years, uh, and would have 4% interest per year. China ended up paying 668 million tails of silver up until 1939. Hmm. However, a large portion of the reparations paid to the United States was diverted to pay for the education of Chinese students in U.S. universities under the Boxer Indemnity Scholarship Program, which sounds nice. Yeah. Sure. So, sounds like a good thing. I didn't look into it too much. I hope it's a good thing. Uh, the UK also had a similar program. Uh, however, the Qing government did not capitulate to all the foreign demands. Uh, the Manchu governor, Yu Qian, was executed, but the court refused to execute General Dong Fuxiang, even though he was one of the like, primary instigators of, of violence. They removed him from duty, sent him back home, and he lived a long life of luxury and power in quote-unquote exile. Until 1908. Hmm. After the war was over, European powers stopped their ambitions of colonizing China and determined that the best way of dealing with China was through the ruling dynasty rather than directly with the Chinese people. This period marks the seeding of European great power influence in Chinese affair with J uh, Japan taking over as the dominant power pretty lopsided uh, and then after the russo-japanese war just a few years later in 1904 and 1905 with japan coming out on top in that uh they're pretty much the the only influence in china for uh decades afterward yeah and i think i'll leave it at that yeah this was very informative so thank you you're welcome there's a lot more <laughs> obviously you could you could yeah, go into you could go into any one of these like particular things for a bit but uh yeah so 1899 to 1901, uh, the boxers were fighting against foreign influence and Christian missionaries, not against the imperial government mm -hmm. and eight nation alliance. All right. So there we go. Are you ready for a quiz? I am ready for a quiz. Okay. This one is kind of a, uh, was kind of stream of conscience uh, with how I came up with things. So okay. we'll, we'll see how it goes. Question one. Speaking of the Boxer Rebellion, it served as a historical backdrop for the 2013 video game Bioshock Infinite. The game takes place in a floating city led by racist religious zealot Zachary Comstock. The targeting of American Christians in China led Comstock to fly his city across the ocean and firebomb Beijing. He gave his city in the clouds a fairly appropriate name given the ultra-patriotism and desire to destroy any foreigners who did not convert to Christianity. What is the name of that city which it shares with a southern state capital, a district, and a country with a slightly different spelling? A southern state capital. A district. Oh! Oh, I got it. Okay. And a country with a slightly different spelling. So that uh, would be Colombia. That is Colombia. Yay. Yes. Uh, Bioshock Infinite was an okay game. 
there, there's a lot of like blatant racism in it fr- mm-hmm. from that particular character and and those people about uh and, and a big a big backstory point is the boxer rebellion because they're targeting american christians and so that's you know the worst thing you can do according to this guy um so yeah it is columbia okay nice job you got 10 points nice question two speaking of bioshock the first two games in that franchise are set not in the sky but in an underwater city so i'm gonna ask for another city name but I'll, I'll give you clues. The name of that city is oddly religious, given the uber-capitalist attitude of no gods, no kings, only men. Not capitalized, Merriam-Webster defines the word as, quote, an expression or manifestation of ecstasy or passion. Capitalized, it could be where everyone went who wasn't left behind. What is this fake city named? And as a hint, uh, left behind is capitalized. Oh, Rapture? It is Rapture. Nice job. Thank you. Yes. I wondered why they named it that. But anyway, yes, the city in the first Bioshock game is called Rapture. Much better game. Speaking of Rapture, question three, that city was founded and led by a man named Andrew Ryan. His mantra of, quote, a man chooses, a slave obeys, end quote, is repeated throughout the game as are various reminders that personal freedoms and unfettered capitalism are the only way forward for the world. He shares these opinions and his initials with what author on whom he was based? Um, surely this is Ayn Rand. Surely it is. Yes. Uh, his name even sounds like Ayn Rand. Yeah. Ryan. Yep. Uh, so there we go. Yes. There's a lot of commentary in those games. Yeah. So there you go. Uh, you're up to 30 points. Oh, you're up to 40 points because you got it. <laughs> okay. Uh, question four. Speaking of Ayn Rand, as we often seem to, her largest <laughs> we work. Do, don't we? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Her largest work and excuse to publish a manifesto is Atlas Shrugged. There are a handful of primary characters, including copper magnate Francisco Denconia, steel man- magnate Hank Reardon. Ideas magnate John Galt, and the true main character, Dagny Taggart. Dagny and her brother Jim run a nationwide company dealing with what? Strangely, for a 1950s novel, they did not seem at all concerned about Eisenhower's infrastructure plans and how that would impact their industry. I don't actually know the answer, but let's say trains. Trains is correct, and railroads. Yes. That was a good clue about Eisenhower. Thank you. Yeah, I was. I had to come up with a way to like give a clue about it because I was like, well, her name doesn't really give it away. Uh, but yes, Dagny Taggart and her brother Jim run the biggest rail company in America. Okay. All right. Uh, question five. Speaking of railroads, what is the term that is used in reference to the width of a railroad track? It is also used for shotgun barrels and ear piercings. Um gauge i think you are correct it is gauge yes and i learned today that the standard united states railroad gauge of like four feet five inches or something like that is based on the standardized ancient roman chariot huh well how about that right (laughs) gotta pick something i guess i guess all right you are at 60 points And our final category is, uh, let's say, accidental scientific advancements. 
I mean, I feel like I have to go for it, right? Like, how often do you get a chance to max out the quiz? I'm going to wager 60 points. Uh, was that how often do I get a chance to? Never. I never get a chance to. You have to. gotten. You've maxed out the quiz. <laughs> I, I think. I think maybe. you have. I don't know. Maybe. We'll see. Okay. Here we go. Speaking of railroads and gauges, Phineas Gage was an American railroad foreman who experienced an unlikely event, which led to advancements in a scientific field rather distant from railroading. He survived an explosion, though he was severely injured. However, the lasting effects of his injury provided valuable insight for which scientific field? And really, there are like two possible answers here. Um, I'm going to say like, I, I believe that he like, I believe that he had like had a some kind of like gruesome brain injury and had like interesting changes and non-changes to his to his function. So I'm going to say neurology. Yeah, I'll take that neuroscience. Yeah, yeah. That's one of the ones I was I would also take in psychology because of the study of personality yeah, with that. Mm-hmm. But yeah. Yep, he got a big old 3-foot rod blasted through his head and he survived. Yeah, that's what it, I that's what I thought I remembered, but I didn't want to actually say say like <laughs> say that like that level of detail. Yeah. But yeah, no, I've heard I've heard his story a little bit before. Yep. Yep. In eighteen forty eight he was packing packing explosives to do some blasting on a rail line and shot a rod through his head and he survived. And it took a chunk of his brain out. And so that accident gave researchers a lot of insight into brain function and different parts of the brain and like the effect that they have and mm-hmm. you know, where does personality live, right? Yeah. That kind of thing. So, yeah. Well, there you go, Emily. 120 points. Nice. Congratulations. Yay. Never to be taught. This was so fun. Good. I'm I'm glad. Plus, I know a lot more about the Boxer Rebellion now. Yeah, it's also good. And I bet our listeners do, too. Speaking of our listeners, thank you, listeners, for spending your time with us. Make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, leave a rating or review, if you would. If you want to check out our Patreon, it's patreon.com slash potentpotables. And if you have friends who watch Jeopardy!, let them know about our podcast. You can all find us on Facebook at Potent Potables, on Twitter at Potent Potables 1. Our email address is potentpotablescast at gmail.com, and our website is potentpod.com. And we'll be back next week with another week of Jeopardy. And until then, may your minds be quick and your buzzers be quicker. Bye.